Yeah, hey guys. I'm really interested in just like what consciousness is and stuff. And it seems like certain scientists are really working hard to figure it out, but I'm getting concerned that it may involve too much math. Is that true? Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. This is the curse of what? Of thinking. Of thinking. The curse of thinking is thinking too, too much. Or, if you think too little, running into problems too. Might not be thinking at all. Huh? Feels like I'm thinking huh? nothing at all. Nothing at all. <laughs> nothing at all. Stupid, sexy consciousness. <laughs> this is Journos, yeah. and I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. And I am Stephen Jackson. And this is a show in which... As you may know, we cover the news in unusual ways. It tends to be we take a dumb story and we take a smart story. And we find the things that connect yep, them. We smash them together and make a dumb story smart and a smart story dumb. Like fusion. Yeah. But also like fission. <laughs> I can't wait to see how you make this dumb. I'm excited. Because I need yeah, it dumbed I think, down. I think we're living it. I think it's, we're living it. Yeah, I think it's yeah. because we're reporting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's just baked right in. Yeah, yeah it's baked right in because uh, it's a big topic. It's a big topic. And so, mm-hmm. so as Brandon was saying, a lot of times this is, there's sort of a normal general sort of mode of this show. And today we're going to be experimenting with something different because another part of this show is us experimenting with new ways to share information, to dig deep into big topics, to kind of explore the boundaries of what somebody might call journalism. Because at the end of the day, it's kind of just information delivered through different mechanisms. We like the idea of thinking about, in this world, how you get information, how you present it. And so the idea we thought of, as you may know from the cold open, is someone asks a question, and then we go do journalism on it, come up with an answer, and bring the person in to tell them what we've learned. Sort of like... A detective agency, yeah. but sexier. Yeah, there it is. And less moving around. It's the second time we've said sexy in, you know, in the show. I mean, the things are heating up. We want to provide anybody who's willing to come on to this show with an answer to... Not anybody not and anybody. not willing. but Not anybody and willing. Okay. We want to provide our esteemed guests to this show with answers to their queries, to their questions about the world. But those answers are going to be supercharged with journalistic firepower. We're going to wrangle Mm -hmm. and apply our abilities uh, as researchers, as thinkers, as people who have have had to do research for stories on the radio and print and all of that stuff. And then we're just going to throw all of that at whatever question our lucky guest wishes to ask us. And I guess that is as good a time as any to introduce our first guest, friend of the show, friend of ours. Guinea pig of the show. Guinea pig, friend and guinea pig of the show, Janet Varney. Hi, Janet. Hi, guys. There are so many different ways that you just described what is going down today. But I would have to say my least favorite is anything that gives me the opportunity to say, ew, someone did journalism all over my question. (laughs) So, Brandon. Yeah, that seems right. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. You I think of it as a glaze or an icing of information. Oh, that's very nice. Supercharging it sounds great. Yeah, supercharge is good, not <laughs> did journalism yeah. to it. It's all perceptual. It is perceptual. Janet, oh. in our inaugural experiment here with this, we solicited a question from you. Mm-hmm. 
And you did not disappoint in coming up with not only a question, but possibly the biggest question facing mankind today. Yep. Why did I do that? Which was great. Yeah. Why did you do it? Would you like to revisit it now? Sure. Um, well, I guess what, it turns out that when two people that I myself like and esteem very much, um, who uh, whose podcast I listen to and feel like, I guess for the most part, I, I, for the most part, I enjoy having journalism done to things. Um, I, I, when you give me something as wide open, thank you. When you give me something as wide open as like, what's, what's a question you have that we could maybe answer for you? I swung for the fences and I said, well, what do we know about consciousness? What are scientists saying these days? Cause it seems like a really elusive topic for just about everyone, including like the most scholarly scientific people out there working on this. Yeah. One thing, yeah. We, we, we did quite a lot of journalism to it. Mm -hmm. And honestly, in some ways, and so just as like a spoiler alert, we don't really know completely. So that's also why I like this question so much is because it kind of raises more questions than, um, than we're able to answer. So we went out and we did some talking, we did some reading. And th this is the cool thing. I learned so much. Brandon and I each hunted down two extremely respected and well-known academics uh, in the field of consciousness study. A and what's cool is that this question is truly one of the oldest questions. Hmm. Like this question goes back thousands and thousands of years and the origins of at least kind of the modern understanding or the modern pursuit of an answer of this question can be found at the very beginning of, at least for Western civilization, the very beginning of when we started to think about what the world meant to us. Hmm. I guess you just called me old. I'm kidding. <laughs> you don't do it. Um... Leave it to Janet to ask a question. We had to go back to Plato to start talking. <laughs> about. Plato was a guy who liked nature, and he would often sit in caves, presumably. I haven't read a lot around the story. But there is what's called the allegory of the cave which is a situation in which Plato describes reality as sitting in a cave with your back to the mouth of the cave. There's a fire and people are moving outside and their movements cast a shadow on the wall of the cave. And you, the observer, can't see what's going on out there. You can only see the shadows. And that was his metaphor for how we perceive reality. We're not seeing things as they actually are. We're seeing some kind of distortion or reflection or projection of them. And we're trying to deduce all these things. So he was essentially saying there's a separation between reality, between the true world and the way that it's interpreted in our heads. Yeah, and, and that kind of has set the trend. Now, there's an Eastern version of that with Buddhism, which we'll get to a little later, that is kind of the opposite of that a little bit. Hmm. Um, but yeah, as far as Western goes, that sort of drove a line between the what is and the what we perceive yeah. to be. And then, of course, that um, later on, like many thousands of years later, you start getting into this idea of dualism. The most famous proponent, or at least the founder of that school of thought, as, as it's generally agreed upon, is uh, Descartes, right? And so this idea of like the dual... Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes, the, the, the mind-body split. And the truth is, the allegory of the cave, not to get too deep philosophically, like that idea 
presupposes some form of dualism, right? That there is reality and then there's like a perception of the reality or there's the body, the physical things that are moving and then the mind, which is in some way experiencing that movement. So dualism says the mind is one thing and the body is another. You know, we take in all this information and the mind exists in some non-physical space and the body is here and we don't know what the mind is, but we know that the brain is sort of a tool for accessing what's going on in the mind this whole other universe of whatever. Lots of riffs on that for a long time, a lot of variations. Science comes along, you know, Descartes' theory was 1641. Since then, science has come along and kind of eroded this idea in that it's taken experiment after experiment after experiment and sort of in the same way that it pushed religion kind of further and further back, it also pushed this idea of this non-physical space. Well, where where is the mind if it's not in the brain? Where is it? There, you know, we haven't got any evidence to support this idea that there's something else out there that's non-physical. So the physical world or the the physicalist definition of the world is like, no, everything that is is in this plane that can be explained by science. And that's kind of dominated pretty much ever since then is, is that sort of physicalist idea. Dualism has been kind of shoved to the fringes and, and kind of overwritten or entirely overwritten. What's interesting about the theories that have come up subsequently is, in a way, they continue to tease that idea. There continues to be a, a purely physicalist version of things and one that allows for the possibility of some space that we can't access. And they don't call it like the space of mind or whatever. Well, they kind of do. Yeah. Um, that idea that like there's something we can't access that our scientific instruments and theories don't can't get at. Yeah. And so that that's somehow valid and that that's where consciousness may spend its time. So even though we've sort of officially said, no, Descartes is wrong, dualism is not a thing, it's still sort of there. It's just been repackaged and kind of, and it's absorbed some religious overtones too, like the idea of God being a mind that is overall of reality and that sort of thing kind of still hangs around. Well, that's the couple of the things that I feel like I'm afraid will come up and we haven't really gotten into it, or at least a couple of the things that I feel like I associate with this sort of concept or with the conversations. And, and I'm being reminded of as I'm listening to you talk about this is like the difference between people having a conversation about the idea of a soul and having the idea of a mind and that mm -hmm. it sounds kind of like science sort of lumps those together, like in terms of the dualism thing, like you said, it sort of leans further into religiosity. Like, well, just as we can't say there's a soul, we can't say that there's this, this, you know, space or non-space where the mind exists. So let's go ahead and write those off. And then the second thing that I want to say is I'm very afraid that like everything I'm interested in, ultimately someone's going to say, it's all math. <laughs> and then I'm going to shrivel up into a yeah. sad yeah. guinea pig yeah. and yeah. go like, oh, no, why did it have to be math? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, good news, bad we news. We were conscious of that. Yeah, yeah, good news, bad news on that one. Um, okay. Well, the good, <laughs> the good news is uh, I, I don't think we're going to have to get too far into religion to give a decent – uh, explanation of what we are calling consciousness or something that it feels to be like. So while we said we looked a little bit 
into some Buddhist takes on this. We did not have to go to church to find the the nature of a soul. But and then the bad news, the bad news is that it has a lot to do with math. Yeah. But it's the su- good, mm. but okay, it's up. Is a roller there was math implied even in you saying there was good news and bad news? I, it was like, I, oh, there's there a percentage is. that's mm-hmm. good news and a percentage is bad. So, news. Boom. So math. So the good news. So that. But what is that percentage? The medium news is Quick. no. It's not even fifty fifty. There's stuff that isn't quite yet math, but it might require new kinds of math. So oh, good, new math. Mm-hmm. So or new physics, really. And so that kind of gets us into a a thinker who, since the early '90s, has really has been a major force in sort of the discovery and the investigation of uh, of consciousness. And his name is uh, David Chalmers. And it was actually yeah. in your hometown of Tucson, Arizona. Nuh-uh. Stop it. Where he was working at the time, and he co-founded the school's Center for Consciousness Studies, and he- At the University of Arizona. Go Wildcats. Wildcats. There it is. Yeah. So the birthplace for the modern conversation about consciousness is Tucson. You can say the birthplace for a modern conversation about consciousness is the birthplace of Janet Varney. That's fine. I, that's I don't fine. mind those things being said great, in the same That's right. That's the transitive po- Coincidence? The property. Yeah. 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 We got him. All right. Where were you in 94, Janet? In 94, I had just remember? left Tucson. Yeah. So like so I missed made the headline room. in the paper. Yeah, I made room for that to happen. This the space I was taking up was so pretentious. <laughs> That we needed to clear out an area for this to happen. So I moved to Flagstaff yeah. and David Chalmers moved in. And I love his name. It sounds like a character in a play or a book. They had to keep yeah. it net zero, yeah. one in, one out. Yep. And then it was right. you left. And That's then they're right. like, okay, David Chalmers can come in and change the game entirely with regard to how people Amazing. believe the world works. Yeah. So yeah. he introduced this thing called the hard problem of consciousness, which Brandon can get into in a little bit more detail. But the, the thing to at least hold in your mind for the moment is that, and this is where it's like math and some not math and a little bit of new math is that there's a hard problem and an easy problem. An easy problem is kind of understanding the nuts and bolts and stuff and like the basic framework and the processes and functions that produce perception, you know, optical information, olfactory information, all of that kind of stuff. We can do that. That's yeah. Although it's very challenging. That's an easy problem. The hard problem of consciousness is why do all of these things produce a subjective experience? Why aren't we just these meat machines that can kind of go throughout their day to find food and react to stimuli and all of this stuff and not have some subjective experience of what it feels like to be conscious, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the hard problem. And that's where the stuff gets actually quite interesting. Hard problem of consciousness. What is it? And again... Chalmers didn't invent this, right? This is stuff that he's sort of carried forth. Um, But essentially it says, why are there subjective experiences? And one of the examples is like, why do we have a perception of the color red? Like the color red should just be signals coming into the eyes and and signaling things. And for the purpose of an organism that's trying to survive, the only thing that really matters is like, does this help us survive, reproduce, eat? That's all that really should matter. So there's no reason that red should have any kind of symbolic value and so he says that exists and there should be a reason for that and the current technology the current theories none of them really address that they address the easy problems Mm -hmm. which is like where is the physical body controlled in the brain how do we think of memories being 
stored, those kinds of things. The machine of the brain is something that the easy problem addresses, but what's produced out of it is the thing that, that makes things tricky. Yeah. And this goes back to a guy named Thomas Nagel, who in 1974 wrote an essay called What It Is Like to Be a Bat. Yeah. Asking the same question. How do we even get into that sort of thing? Brandon went to talk to a PhD named Martin Monti out of UCLA. And he, in many ways, kind of discussed the, the easy problem, right? And then I found uh, this guy named Dr. Timothy Bain, who kind of shared a little bit about what the hard problem is and some thoughts on that. And interestingly enough, Dr. Timothy Bain, his, his doctoral work was supervised by David Chalmers. So we kind of got really close. The new Janet Varney. That's right. Supervised by, by David Chalmers under the, you know, the sponsorship of Janet Varney. I think Great. that's, that's how right. that chain right. of command worked. But that's anyway, right. so we got really close yeah. to the problem and it was really, really interesting. So again, we're going to get more to that. And can I ask you really quick, are these opposing views uh, or are these kind of working together? Like, are these minds aware of each other or is this just sort of like this field of study within a field of study over here, this field of study within a field of study over here, and they're not necessarily contradicting or agreeing with each other? That's a good question. They, it depends on who you are and kind of what your approach is. The two can be in agreement. And I think in general, people agree that there is an easy problem, which is the technical stuff that you can like put something, someone in an MRI and will see things and can learn things about their behavior, which is where Monty spends his time. My mm -hmm. guy, Monty. Okay. Uh, his work is entirely around the easy problem. What he's doing is very hard, yeah. but it is the easy problem in that how do you... Easy is a bit of a euphemism in this case. Yeah. Easy is absolutely a euphemism. The pinnacle of science is, is, is working on this, and that's the easy part. Yeah. And then the hard problem is the one that really creates the most diversity of opinions, some of which are you know nearly mystical seeming. Yeah. But the two can work together, and they don't tend to conflict. But out of those two, I think it's safe to say, in the 30 years since he presented this paper in Tucson, Arizona in 1994 at the University of Arizona. Go Wildcats. Um, <laughs> there are something like 13 major theories for, for consciousness that have really technical, crazy names. Wow. But we'll sort of, we're not going to go through all of those, but you'll sort of get the gist of, of what that kind yeah. of spectrum is, okay. which is sort of on the one side from, like, it's all just... You know, I, I call it, it's all just juices and jolts. It's all just that. fluids in the brain know, and electrical signals. That. Yeah, I hate that. Yeah. This idea, I, I mean, I've heard that. I mean, I've de without <laughs> knowing the, the details of that, if there even are any, I, yeah. I do not care for the sure. dismissiveness of like, oh, no, this is just a byproduct. It's just like a burp. Like, oh, we're just, we are mm -hmm. meat machines and consciousness is just like a weird byproduct with no meaning. Stop trying to make it about something. I, I don't care for that at all. And I keep asking questions, which probably are like totally derailing you, but I'm trying to put this in my own sort of files. Like how, okay. Well, how if I, it's This is how the brain does it. This is it. And this if, is how it happens. This is the whole point. This is the magic. Yeah. The yeah. other thing I was going to ask, when you talk about somebody who makes their life's work, the study of consciousness. You know, this Monty person that I know we're going to be hearing more about in a little bit, this Monty character, you know, when you, if you're talking about the sort of more physical, like corporeal, like, yes, the science of the olfactory system or the this and that, I can sort of imagine what a day in the life of a researcher who does that might look like. 
But if we're talking about something that feels more, I don't want to say esoteric, but if you're sitting outside of that, how do you study it? What is a day of research for Chalmers like? Like, what does that mean? You sit a, you take like a cactus in, a, in an empty room, completely empty room. <laughs> this makes sense to me from Tucson. Yes, got it. And he just, and he just stares at it for like eight, no, seven and a half hours. Okay. And then 30, at the end yeah. of that, 30 minutes, 30 minute lunch, 30 minute lunch, quick couple memos. <gasps> Yeah. Call it a day. Yeah. And that's the that's the gig. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So that's an answer. It's not a it's not a straight. We told you answer. we were gonna make a smart thing dumb, and that's we and it was gonna be our fault. <laughs> I appreciate that. What you're talking about is essentially the the range, right? Like on one side it's pure philosophy. It really is somebody looking at a cactus trying to think through these things, not in a like hippy dippy way, but in a like if this, then that, if this, then that, like a classical training, how do we use logic to get to the bottom of this? And then the other side, the other extreme is using big machines to analyze signals yeah. and, and things that can be measured, mm -hmm. whether those things are biological, like brain stuff, or whether they are physics, like quantum things, yeah. like particles and stuff. Like that's kind of the, the range of it. Hmm. So Martin Monti, he's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at UCLA. And his focus is really about what's going on in the brain when various states of consciousness happen. So he's looking at stuff that he can measure. And he was very explicit about it when I interviewed him that, you know, there's people that like to study the philosophical stuff. He's interested in that. But to him, the thing that appeals to him really is figuring out like the mechanisms about it and specifically the liminal space between where consciousness ends and this other thing begins, unconsciousness. I would say that I primarily work on some of the most foundational aspects of the human experience, one of which is consciousness. So what does it mean to be consciousness? How does it arise from the joint action of neurons? Why do we sometimes lose it? Under what conditions and, and how do we regain it? In his case, he's looking at vegetative states. So people mm. who are in comas, yeah. they often come out of comas, but then there are people who are in these persistent vegetative states where their eyes are open, they're looking at stuff, they seem to be responsive, but their brain activity shows a much reduced state of consciousness or no consciousness at all. So for the longest time, people assume, well, people in vegetative states aren't perceiving things, but that was an unsatisfactory answer for him. And for other researchers. So they said, how do we figure out if that's true? How can you reach these people who can't talk or seem to respond? What if we focused on understanding what yeah. is the minimal set of neural activities and neural functions and neural characteristics that together jointly give rise to this experience that we have? In a sense, it has it has taken us away from these much broader and harder to tackle questions about what is consciousness in the first place into the perfect realm of science. You know, stuff that you and I can see in the lab, measure, quantify, repeat yesterday, today, tomorrow, and, and see over and over again. So all the legit tools of science. And, and this has really been a big, a huge shift in our approach to studying consciousness. And so he starts working with his mentor and realizes that there is a way to use the existing technology potentially to communicate with them. And the way they do it is to put a patient who's in a vegetative state into an fMRI, right? And what the fMRI does is it measures brain activity in different parts of the brain. 
So they know things like if you imagine something, your brain responds to it the same way as if you're actually doing it. So this is sort of an interesting workaround for them. So they said, what if we ask someone in a vegetative state to imagine two different things? One, imagine playing tennis. Imagine what it's like to swing the racket. Imagine what it's like to run across the court. And the part of the brain that that lights up is the dorsal or the top of the brain. And then he says, and we'll also get them to imagine walking around their house. And that lights up a different part of the brain, which is closer to the bottom. And so then they explain to this patient, who again is vegetative. They give the patient these prompts. So the patient is sitting in a vegetative state entirely. So they're talking essentially right. to what appears to be a blank screen. And they're asking right. these questions as if they're, they're in the fMRI, right. Mm-hmm. And then the brilliant thing is they turn that into a language. They say, whenever you think of tennis, tennis is yes, wow. and being in your house is no. Wow. So wow. we're going to ask you a question and look at the way your brain responds. So if the wow. top of the brain responds to the question, that means they're thinking of tennis, which they have now coded as yes. And if the bottom of the brain lights up, that means they're thinking about walking around their house, and that translates to no. So in that way, as he says, And if somebody can imagine two different things, and I can tell them apart, now you have a language. It's a very simple language. It's a binary. It's, a, it's an on and off. It's a yes or no. And so what we did is we demonstrated that actually you could even ask questions to somebody and tell them, look, if you want to say yes, imagine playing tennis. If you want to say no, imagine walking around the rooms of your home. And you can actually see it. Of course, it's not a very practical way of communicating with somebody. But even just that is a way of, A, demonstrating um, that somebody is conscious, which, of course, is extremely valuable and has a lot of uh, clinical, but also legal and ethical ramifications. But it's also you know, a way to give them at least a, a, a modicum of personal uh, independence where they can start interacting with the outside world with this approach. And so they found that they were able to communicate with people in a very simple way, which meant that there's more going on perceptually with these people than they had thought before. What do you think about that? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think I have the reaction that I would imagine a lot of people have, which is I feel like we've sort of been conditioned to think about when we think about vegetative states, which is like DNRs or like pulling the plug Mm -hmm. or, you know, how do you understand if someone is still quote unquote, in there? And how do you find out what they want? If want is uh, still a part of it? Like, it's amazing how fast your brain just goes through so many scenarios. Like, well, wow, Mm -hmm. what if we came up with a way to do this, like on the cheap? And so if someone had a relative in a vegetative state, they could essentially still be having conversations with them. And how much harder would it be to let that person go unless they got the explicit order from that person's consciousness inside their body? Like, I'm trapped in here. It's okay. Let's say goodbye. I'm all right. You know, all of that stuff. It just gets like super emotional for me real quick. Maybe maybe the people who are going to invest in that are like, you know, the, the, the estate lawyers sort of union. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, we have to bring this to the to market. Yeah. It's going to make our job so much easier. Now it would be, no, because that person would be mm. like, I'm still here. Don't give any of my stuff away. Don't, don't give any of my shit away. I'm thinking about tennis or right. I'm thinking about walking around <laughs> in my house. Like, like, 
Who gets the, the house? The, tennis. The, they said yeah. tennis. The estate planner would be like, okay, I want you to think about counting your money. And that lights up this part of your brain. And then I want you to think about being yeah. alone in a room with just bones. And that's no. And when I say, should I give all your money away? I, you've, you're thinking about bones. <laughs> Yeah. And everyone's like, damn, my uncle's not going <laughs> to use that jet ski. Why won't he let me have it? Uh, anyway, so that's that's just really interesting. So in this way, some degree of perception is occurring, but it's just extremely, I mean, truncated, maybe you could call it. But it, 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 it's an extremely sort of life support version of perception. I mean, you can get a lot done yeah. with the yes or no answers and questions. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of dumbfounded yeah. by this. And then where do dreams, where do dreams figure in for Monty? Where's that in consciousness? We didn't talk about that explicitly, but I think dreams they work the same way as like imagining playing tennis. Like if you're dreaming about playing tennis, that part of the brain is lighting up. And there are, you know, Stephen and I have talked about possibly on a previous episode the machines that are now able to like look at your thoughts and like figure out what you're thinking based on the patterns that are coming up. Mm -hmm. Like you train the machine by thinking about something over and over again. And then it goes, okay, this is the pattern of your thoughts. Oh no, it's weirder than when that. You're thinking they train thing. it. They make them listen to podcasts, man. Oh no. This yeah, is true. They actually, AI the shit. subjects, the subjects, they make them yeah. listen to like 10 hours of podcasts or books on tape. And then th they can timestamp the region of the brain that lights up when a certain word is said on the podcast and then they can Whoa. create this correlation and then they hook that up to an AI. Then that same subject who's been trained on the 10 hours of podcast, they could be like, think about a dog barking. And then the, the readout base that's hooked up to that mapping will be like, a dog is barking. Whoa. That yeah. creeps me out a little bit. Yeah. Um, it should. It should, it, yeah. it should terrify you, you and feel? everyone who's listening yeah. to the show. And and what is and what does that look like? Like if you're a person who's volunteered for this, or you're being paid for it or whatever, and you're listening to ten hours of podcasts, like what device is track? Like are you having? Are you a person who's comfortable just lying in F in an fMRI, like yep. just listening to something? That because that's not me. <laughs> I think you do it for. I think you just do. Yeah. It, you do it for science and for the yeah. for the money, right? Yeah. I mean, like they, they well, and also these are poor. I mean, it's sister cell plasma or sperm. Mm. This feels like conjecture. Yeah. Science marches on, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. So, so Monty. Monty. Um, the interesting thing about what he's doing is that it's, it's exposing these kind of ethical considerations about what consciousness is and what it isn't, and the fact that the line between what we think of as consciousness and not is limited by what we can see and what we expect. You know, mm -hmm. If you talk to me when I talk to you, I assume you're conscious. And if you don't, then I assume you're not. And he's sort of saying, no, there's things going on. Now, what's peculiar about that is that you're relying on, in this case, fMRI. It's a big machine. It's expensive. So this isn't necessarily a great technique for talking to these people because, again, it's expensive and, like, you have to, like, have somebody know what tennis is and, and all of that. He said that there's somebody that he worked with who's figured out how to do this with an EEG, which is much easier, and that's just something that you can use electrodes on your head. So there is some progress there, which... You know, if that becomes more standardized, then you all of a sudden have this communication tool for these people who were previously thought to be lost causes. So that'll be interesting to pay attention to. Yeah. So what's interesting that he's done now is to figure out how to, and he's worked on this with multiple patients in L.A. and elsewhere, beam ultrasound into the brain for like 10 minutes in these little short increments 
And then he's found that people are reacting. People who have been in vegetative states are sort of coming out of it. They're becoming more responsive. Oh, He performed this on one guy, and then he sent him home with his wife, and he said... So just about a week later, the wife comes back uh, with uh, her husband, and she doesn't even say hi to me. She just says, Dr. Monty, I need more of this. And I say, okay, why, why do you say that? And her words were, I've had the first conversation with my husband since the accident. And so, of course, I wasn't clear. <laughs> well, what did she mean? So it turns out a few days after this intervention, she figured out that he could look up and look down fairly systematically, which he had never done before. And so she would show him pictures and tell him names of people in the pictures and say, if you recognize them, look up. If you don't, look down. And it, for the very first time, she felt like she was having a two-way interaction with her husband after two-something years since an accident. So that is extremely powerful. That is the single most rewarding thing that can happen. Sort of to have the science bred by all these scientific, philosophical questions, but then impacting real people. No, yeah. I mean, about that. and so for all these people poo-pooing the easy problem, it's like the easy problem is doing some pretty crazy shit. And, and I think that you, what you're touching upon with this conversation with Monty is that when we think about consciousness, getting back to the original question of what is consciousness, it's at least partially that. It, it, it is the the jolts and juices and it's inextricably tied to the other thing that we talked about, about what it's like to be that. I think this makes a really strong argument for the intertwining nature of those two things, because we're able now as proved by this wonderful scientist to have a phenomenological experience and two way conversation via this sort of substrate of the machine. Mm -hmm. And then it produces something that can be identified as some kind of experience, a conscious experience, albeit really basic, right? But to me, that kind of starts pointing to not an answer to your question, but at least the beginnings of like, okay, now we're kind of getting a lay of the land. Yeah, yeah. mapping it. That makes sense. It, what this brings me back to is you, Janet. You asked a really broad question. What is consciousness? Mm -hmm. But why do you personally care? about this question. What's been going on with you that makes this an important question to you? I think I'm just a, one of those people that always butts up against the mystical, but sort of wants the mystical, but then sort of is embarrassed to want the mystical, but like wants to know, and then is excited by the idea of being given permission to feel wonder about something because it's tied to science. And... I think for me, if you're talking about blurring borders, I send all my respect to someone who genuinely does imagine a bearded man like creating us and like having a plan for us. Yeah, um, that sounds that's easy. Not, yeah, that's not my perception of it, but I don't know what my perception of any of that is if I ha even have one. And so this falls into the category of sort of well, I'm not saying I need ghosts and I'm not saying I need UFOs, but I do feel like there's stuff I don't understand. And I'm OK with that as long as someone smarter than me is like also saying, you know, just because 
we can't explain it scientifically yet doesn't mean there's not an explanation. And the explanation could be wonderful and it could be so mind blowing and it could be just as awesome as, you know, seeing a lady in a Victorian gown, like walk across the room. You know, I, I don't believe that someone gave me a soul, but I do believe that there's more happening than just red is pretty because once I was a monkey who like needed to know what a butt looked like or whatever, <laughs> you know, where's what's the in between? Like, what does that look like? So it's the whole sort of like the human search for meaning, I guess. Yeah. I'm ready for someone to sort of, maybe I'm not ready. I don't know. Um, but this idea of not kind of the, uh, go, going all the way back to Descartes, like the idea of not being able to know what you're not seeing or perceiving because of how our own sensory experience has evolved for whatever natural reason could also leave room for all this shit we just can't not see or perceive and what if we could crack that open a little bit more like would we all go crazy and just like scream and run around and then fall on the ground dead or yeah. <laughs> would we understand each other better or would we feel more hope or would it feel more urgent to like do more about our planet like all of that stuff I think, I mean, you brought the goods. I mean, you know, that is... That is um, I haven't even gotten a chance to make the joke about the full Monty yet. Oh, nice. Like, well, we're never going to be able to get the full Monty in just one <laughs> conversation. Yeah, it's funny, Janet, that sort of eagerness about figuring things out. I was sort of feeling that with Martin Monty when I was talking to him. Because here's a guy who's doing this really interesting stuff. And he's like, he's literally on the frontier of consciousness and that it's where it ends, where it falls into this great dark space of, of unconsciousness. And so I wanted to know, like, do you give any credence to some of these more outlandish theories about like consciousness being fundamental or any of that stuff? And, and that's considered like, outlandish. Well, fundamental well, meaning like a rock is conscious, like fund yeah. like like and, and, the, oh, like yeah. the universe yeah. is made up of consciousness and every right. single thing in the universe that must yeah. therefore have consciousness, which is yeah. panpsychism, yeah. which gotcha. is more or less been kind of like eye rolled. No, no, I see. I disagree with that. I think a lot of people take it very seriously, yeah. including physicists, yeah, because it's how the physicists can explain. Consciousness. Well, because everybody anyway, has my, their own dog in this fight, right? It, they're funny, sort of like, do these people play each other in softball moments about like, <laughs> like, like, well, it's, and it's, yeah, it's kind of like what Brandon and I were talking about this recently too, just the sort of like inherent accidental or I guess intentional bias of whatever your field of study is or whatever your specialty is. Like, your job is to put stuff through that filter. That's what mm -hmm. you study. So you put yeah. through, it through your filter. But what if just the very nature of putting something through that filter creates this bias that's very difficult to overcome when you're like, well, my training is to look at it and see if it could be this or that. And so if I see mm -hmm. certain aspects of it, then I'm going to say it's this. Whether or not there's all this other material I don't see because I'm not perceiving it because that's not my filter. My filter doesn't contain those qualities. And so then you have the person on the other softball team who's like, and yet when I put it through my filter, I see all of these things that I recognize yeah. as blank. So therefore it's blank. And that's actually the conversation that I heard was someone saying, mathematically, if I can prove that through math, that the universe contains consciousness and then consciousness is a fundamental and you can mathematically, potentially, potentially, theoretically, you could apply yeah. that math 
to everything and you would have explained why consciousness is there and that it's and that seems all so nebulous to me i don't even really know what i'm saying i'm just like parroting what i heard well and monty's reaction to that is again like i don't know that there's any evidence to support any of these crazier theories crazier in quotes because if it turns out to be the case i don't want to be on the wrong side of that (laughs) you know but he said Look, very smart people are very smart because they're very specialized and they know a lot about it, but it doesn't mean they know everything about everything. You wouldn't go to Einstein if you had a toothache. So, okay. hey. I might. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> <Yeah>. being contrarian. <laughs> you couldn't stop me if I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> what, am I, what am I doing? I'm not making this any easier for any of us. Rude. So, yeah, so he doesn't put a lot of stock in some of that that kind of stuff but he did say something incidentally that was a whole different revelation for me and when i told it to steven it blew his mind too was talking about like he thinks consciousness exists in the brain and you can tell that because of all the signaling but he said i know some people think that consciousness is out there and that the brain receives it like an antenna he said i don't subscribe to this radiohead theory of consciousness and then we were like oh my god that's the band yeah Yeah. now this matters to me now Now, this matters put it in a pop culture we can have a conversation what if only it was the imagine dragons theory of consciousness (laughs) so if i if i may just to just to put a pin on that or just to put a button on that so monty like monty is not a person who would ever believe that a body, a dead body has expelled its consciousness and that in some way that person or that consciousness or that energy or whatever could still exist in some form. It exists for him. It exists in the brain. We're f- we're seeing that there's more brain activity and consciousness happening than we thought maybe was there before with living humans. But that's that's the extent of it. Nobody's saying like he's not saying like, yeah, we're all part of a certain type of consciousness or, you know. Mm. Right. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I would say he was and he wasn't violently against it. I would call him agnostic. Okay. I mean, if there was evidence to support yeah. that sort of thing, I think he'd be like, sure. But he's just saying like. You know, he's like, show it to I me. I mean, specific. Okay, show it to yeah, me. Yeah, show it to me. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't see any consciousness in a rock, and I haven't seen anybody do any experimental work that demonstrates that. So I don't know why we should give that credence now. Yeah, and he doesn't. It's he truly just, when in he's, the realm, and he's not like interested in like conversations about mushrooms and like tree roots and stuff as being like well, a form of consciousness. Oh yeah, mm. I mean, we didn't talk about it, so I, I wouldn't know but no he did say like i know there's people who think that a forest is conscious people who think that ants are conscious like he's interested in all that it's not his area of expertise and okay and i think he's kind of just like yeah show me the so to speak money i would show me the monty okay um all right so i like him i've decided that he's agnostic and i like what he's doing and i like him and that's what this podcast is about is do i like this guy hot or not scientists (laughs) It's the first episode. He's hot. He's hot. He's hot. He's hot. Great. He is very attractive. Martin, I'm sorry to have to go there, but you're a good looking guy. Great. I think that. It's nobody's fault. So the why, the what is the nature of the question too? It's like we're seeking this like mystery. And to be clear, we couldn't talk to, you know, everybody 
in the world, like we didn't talk directly to a spiritual advisor or a priest or a monk or a rabbi or anybody. We didn't talk to anybody that would speak more like about the potential spiritual nature of consciousness and its relationship to the body or the mind. So that is something that is that remains that we just in the in the interest of being good journalists, we kind of have to leave that part. No, out I of get our, that. Of, I get yeah. that. But that's the problem is that I'm trying yeah. to thread the yeah. needle between spiritual and yeah. scientific because I'm not yeah. I don't want it to be just, you know, sort of like, well, theology suggests da da da. I feel like I understand that. Yeah, we all understand that pretty right. well just because of. Right. The way our society functions and how many different forms of religion there are and how ancient many of them are and yeah. why you could conceive of them forming in the first place and all that kind of stuff. I'm just trying to figure out like where the parameters are for scientists. I'm not as I don't need you to give me a spiritual opinion because I feel like that's pretty readily available. I feel like I have yeah. a sense of yeah. where those parameters are. I'm interested in the parameters that start getting into this sort of me metaphysical out there wackadoo yeah. kind of stuff. It's not exactly cutting edge, the religion, you know, so we figure like yeah. you probably know that. Yeah. Go to any hotel in America and you can read all about it. And in some hotels, you can read newer stuff like the Book of Mormon. And if you have a cutting edge religion, it's a cult. Walk away. That's right. So I think that you could see why people would turn to these larger stories about these unexplainable forces when you actually start to unpack this idea of the hard problem of our subjective experience of being conscious. It really makes sense that older cultures before science had things like myth and religion that would attempt to explain this experience we're all having, right? If, if you had no other tools to explain what it was or to investigate and to interrogate that, then it it does feel like this on all-knowing, unseeing force, right? Like, in that itself, in my opinion, this is now me, not I, I think that itself is beautiful, right? Like, I think that there's a certain beauty and wonder in the idea that something could be not so much supernatural, but like hypernatural, mm -hmm. right? Like, like that yeah. it is, the, it is this there, you don't have to go further to have this godlike, wonderful being like it, it there's this really interesting, unimaginably complex and beautiful thing that's happening that as we're going to get into could just be a natural property of all of these really complicated processes that are all kind of coming together and that subjective experience is a property of of the totality of those functions right so i came across this really interesting guy named dr timothy bain and he did his undergraduate work at notre dame and then he went to Tucson, Arizona to do his PhD, where he was supervised by, again, by David Chalmers. It, I think it's important to note that he, he studied under him, not just because it's like, whoa, this is pretty cool. We got pretty darn close to the source here, but it's so that we can have context to sort of where he's coming from academically. So when I asked him this question, we said, we're, we have this guest coming on and she's asked us what consciousness is. His response was really simple and also really cool. Your questioner knows what consciousness is already, yeah, because they are conscious. Now, that's a, that's I, that sounds like a silly answer, a trivial answer, but it's not. It's a profound answer, right? If someone says, I come across this word, diplodoticus, in a dictionary. What is a diplodoticus? And, you know, it turns out it's a kind of dinosaur. But unless someone tells you about dinosaurs, you have no idea what a diplodocus is. Yeah. But consciousness is not like that because you are conscious and you're acquainted with your own experience in virtue of being conscious. 
right? You, you know what it's like to be conscious in a way that's very profound. So there's a first person, kind of a subjective, your own experience is, is available to you. And that gives you some insight into the nature of consciousness, not a theoretical insight. Yeah. That's the weird thing. You can't really talk about it, but you know what it's like to be conscious because you're conscious. And that's a really profound thing to say, I think. It's like a weird, funny dinosaur name and all this kind of stuff, but it, it brings us into this different neighborhood of this discussion because yeah. there is this subjective experience. It is not theoretical. You can s explain what your experience is and my experience. And this is where he also breaks things down into sort of these three schools of thought, which are the illusionists, the primitivists, so kind of like a primitive view of consciousness and a reductionist view. So the first one with these illusionists. Janet mentioned those earlier. Those are the ones that I feel like will be the ones that you identify with the least. Yeah, I can't tell if primitivist or reductionist. Reductionist seems even more insulting. They all sound bad. To, to people who like enjoy art, all three uh -huh. of those sound like they're just <laughs> awful. But so he actually had a funny thing about the illusionists. And he said, for illusionists, it's the best of a bad bad set of choices. Yeah. Okay. Got right. It. You're at you're at you're at the buffet. You don't want to eat this pizza, but you don't want to eat anything else worse, right? So that's kind of funny. Illusionists they say that it, the conscious experience is an illusion. It's not necessary. It's like there's all these processes happening, and it's not really a thing. He kind of gets past that pretty quickly, and then he talks about this thing that what he would describe as as a primitivist view, and that's like this idea that consciousness is pervasive in all things in the universe. And we kind of mm. touched upon that earlier when we were mentioning panpsychism. And then there's this reductionist view. So the picture here is, you know, God's in the cosmic kitchen cooking up the world. You want some elephants, you put in, you know, this bit of physical stuff and you get an elephant. You want a conscious elephant, you put in the physical stuff in a different way. So it's not a separate ingredient that you add to the world. That's the primitive view. Mm -hmm. It's something that emerges when you get other things, physical, ordinary physical things arranged the right way. And the reductionist view is actually kind of interesting because for me, I had the same knee-jerk reaction to being like, oh, I would never be a reductionist. But if we're thinking about consciousness in these two ways, hard problem, easy problem, the reductionist view describes all of the stuff that Dr. Monty is involved in and folks like Anil Seth are doing in terms of like the neuroscience investigation, neuroscience based investigation of consciousness. And that could be reduced. But then there is this property that results from all of those things. And I think that actually still leaves a lot of room for investigation and wonder in a really cool way. Wait, so let me make sure I'm understanding this. So okay. I understand the illusionists. I mean, insofar as you can, I understand the primitives insofar as you can, but the reductionist is like consciousness is because it is. Stephen, correct me if I'm wrong, but reductionist essentially means part of the problem is you can't look at the elements of what makes consciousness and figure out what it is from that, right? So consciousness is an emergent property. You need all of this complexity to have consciousness in the same way that like the behavior of a storm system or an ant colony or any of these things. It's like there's a bunch of simple parts and they're working together, and this thing emerges from it, is the idea that like you can't look at any of the elements and find it in there. It only comes out at this higher level. But isn't that kind of like being on a Goldilocks planet? All of these things have to happen for humans to evolve at all, and then within the human, all of these things have to happen to get to consciousness? I, I think what we should do is even back up a little bit to talk about 
a reductionist viewpoint that he put out there as something that is out there in a fairly mainstream way, and that is called the global workspace theory. And the global workspace theory, he describes as something like this. One way to think of the mind, what the brain's doing is it's got a whole bunch of these modules and they kind of just do their own thing, right? There's like 25 cooks in the kitchen and this one does a souffle and this one does the soup and this one does, I don't know, some salads, right? And they're not really talking to each other. They're just operating autonomously. And consciousness is this global workspace where information goes into it, it gets integrated, and then if it's important, it's available to be talked about and to guide behavior. So in my understanding, this is a reductionist view of consciousness because if we are to were to investigate properly all of these different processes and find new ways to quantify these things that are going on, the idea of what consciousness is, that question, would dissolve. Because you can kind of explain, get to what this experience is based on the proper investigation and illumination of all of these processes. And, and then, and then this, the sum total of that is this emergent property that we would call a conscious experience. And is that when you say if we were to, does that mean that you can or someone is? Or is that like, we don't need to do all of that. Just trust me when I say, because now I'm going full Monty and saying, well, then show me. If we do that, then it dissolves. Well, it hasn't dissolved for me. So show me. Make it dissolve. Yeah. What, what, what is this? What is this? So I hate to say it, the vibe that I'm getting uh -huh. from like <laughs> all these people and, and the it's way fair. they're thinking about things, the folks like Tim Bain and folks like Anil Seth, they get into this idea that, that, that again, the, pro the hard problem of consciousness, the why do we have a subjective experience? Well, the more we understand about the way that all of the machines of perception work, the more we can understand that, well, that actually answers the question of why a subjective experience is produced or why it occurs. And there's a, a, a metaphor that I found about global workspace theory that Stephen's talking about that, Janet, I think should... Uh appeal to you. This is from a Psychology Today article by Mark Travers, PhD. He says, in global workspace theory, the mind is likened to a theater. Conscious thoughts are the activities spotlighted on stage at a given moment, though this mental spotlight is scattered across certain brain regions rather than confined to a single space. So just that idea of conceptualizing that the brain is doing all of this stuff, and consciousness isn't the brain doing all of the different things it's doing. It's this emergent, like, what's the focus at any given moment? You know, like, you're not, your ears are working the same amount, you're breathing the same amount, you're seeing all of those things, but like, you're hearing stuff that you're tuning out. So that's becoming less conscious. So the spotlight's not there, even though your ears are working, taking in exactly the same amount of sensory information, you're just not paying attention to it. So your spotlight has moved somewhere else. So they're trying to say, you know, in this entire influx of sensory information, Consciousness is just the thing that's focusing on and building an awareness of the world at any given moment. Yeah. And we think, well, that's complete. But obviously we know like you don't hear things that are important all the time. That sort of stuff, like the important things are going by. So we know that the universe, again, exists outside of us. But the thing that we're focusing on is this, is what consciousness is in that theory, I think. 
Yeah. And that's where the research kind of took me to Anil Seth. Now he's out of the UK. He's like a a preeminent name in the study of consciousness, especially in, as it relates to neuroscience. And he has been basically working on this a version of what he's calling predictive processing theory. There is a difference between what the brain expects and what it gets. And then in this predictive processing theory, the brain is kind of constantly evolving to make the best guess of what these sensory causes are. So what he likes to say is that we're not passively perceiving our world. We're actually actively generating it. And then I'm just going to quote him from this uh, article he put into The New Scientist. So he says, and it's through ideas like this that I believe we will eventually come up with a satisfying scientific account of consciousness. Instead of solving the hard problem head on, we may end up dissolving it by developing and testing detailed explanations of how the properties of consciousness depend on their underlying mechanisms. In this way, we will have solved what I call the real problem of consciousness. Okay. Ta-da! Yeah, so <laughs> in that way, global workspace theory, predictive processing theory, the nature of what this subjective experience is, and that way is a part of a reductionist view, because it's saying that if we go in through the easy problem and really dig in through that easy problem, which mm -hmm. we haven't done adequately yet, right. in that way, the hard problem goes away. Right. Because that we understand sense. why. Okay. Yeah. So Janet, I share your fear about like, if we dug too deep, what is the world just this like soulless, boring, gray place, right? Like, like I've always had this inclination to want to believe in some sort of maybe general, again, like you said, not ghosts, but just something bigger, you know, something like this. And when I think about what these folks are really saying, it gets back to that idea of like, there's this like hypernatural element to it. And the idea that we're all sharing this experience, we know intimately what consciousness is. And so if it is something that we can kind of begin to understand if we go via the process or the processes, I still think there's some pretty magical stuff that we're left with, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well. No, no. I mean, like, I don't. Yeah. I, I'm just searching my own. I'm searching my own feelings about that, and and because the way we came into this question has to do with feelings and not just intellect. That feels still kind of bland, but I understand that the reason it feels bland is the same reason that people want to believe in God. So I'm not saying that it's not true or that it's not cool, and that you know that we look for something that comes from outside of ourselves or goes to outside of ourselves to explain a connectivity between each other. And so the idea that you all of that can be happening inside yourself, but still be a shared experience, individual to individual, because we're all like playing by some set of rules that are only have c come out of being conscious together alone. Um, huh. It's totally nice. And again, I'm not trying to explain like, life after death or anything although i sh i would like to i would like to yeah it's a weird thing to bump up against i think it's just completely and probably completely and totally emotional but that's interesting in and of itself like why why does that f feel like it's not enough do you know why I, and that's I, that's interesting that's an interesting question but that's like psychoanalysis now but the problem is you want to feed it back into the machine right you want to feed it back yeah. into the machine and say no 
my feeling about this matters. My feeling about this thing, if I'm the one experiencing it and I'm the one who understands what it's like to be conscious and this is part of that and I'm having this organic experience, then part of my consciousness is some sort of feeling like, no, it's, it's, there's something else there. Like, yeah. Why, yeah. why, why, why do I continue to have that? And if it, and if it's just this longing for something, why isn't what you said enough to feel mystical or to feel magical and important enough? Cause again, I'm not asking for a goddess. I'm just like, just as a secular humanist, if that's what you are, that's a beautiful place to be. The idea that you create this emotional connection with people that is just as meaningful without a God as there is with one. I don't know why I can't stretch the science <laughs> to that place. Do you know what right. I mean? But I mean, yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm interested in it and I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to dismiss it. I'm just, I'm fascinated by my own lack of willingness to be like, you know, huh? Hmm. Okay. Like, yeah. All right. It's just, my brain's doing its thing. That's pretty magical. I have feelings and thoughts and emotions and I guess that's it. Yeah, and I think there's the the tension that pulls all this stuff along is the tension of anything that seems to suggest that consciousness is not the most important thing in the universe or that it's the exhaust from all of these other mental processes that's just coming out of the tailpipe flies in the face of what we know to be true, which is that consciousness is all, we, all there is. Like, it's all we know. It's yeah. obviously the most important, it's self-evidently the most important thing in the universe because it's the thing that creates the fabric of it. So anything that suggests it's invalid is going to be something we push back against and say, no, it's clearly important. Here we are. Yep. And, and so that's the thing you come back to over and over again. And I think part of the thing that drives these other theories, which we can talk a little bit about here at the end, which are sort of the biggest scale ones, which are the idea that because we can't find a satisfactory answer to what consciousness is in any of these biological explanations, therefore it must be something more fundamental. And so that's how you have this theory of panpsychism, which has been around forever. The Buddhists believe that mind and world were kind of the same thing. The thought and the universe were connected and, and were, were possibly interchangeable, that they aren't distinct and all of this stuff is a manifestation of some singular source you know, the universe, all the stuff in it, the way we think about it, all of this stuff exists on one plane. It's all just sort of manifestations of the same thing. That's sort of the Buddhist version of that. And the more modern extrapolation of that is what if consciousness is a field of energy and it is in all things? And so a rock does have some consciousness. A single cell has a little tiny bit of consciousness, but then you have something complicated like a brain and that's how you have the kind of consciousness that we think of. And an animal has less than ours because they're not as complex. And that's, and to be clear, that's panpsychism. And then, that's panpsychism. But then, but, and you're not going to believe this, that thing that Brandon just said about how it's a field of energy that is, exists and pervades all things, that's not even the trippiest theory out there right now. The, it, it, and there is this theory that has to do with all the weird quantum shit, and that is called orchestrated objective reduction, or Orc, O-R. And that makes panpsychism look like a walk in the park. <laughs> it certainly makes it look like something that physicists will like, which is just that there are these structures in the brain called microtubules, which exist. They're these protein structures in the brain. And a Nobel Prize winning physicist named Roger Penrose came up with this with an anesthesiologist named Stuart Hameroff. 
that came up with this in the 90s. And it essentially says that consciousness is a quantum process that is facilitated by these protein structures in the brain. And, you know, this is connected to the idea of quantum computing and, and all the high-level stuff, right, where at a small enough level, the universe acts totally bonkers, and something that should be a particle in one place is actually in multiple places at once, because at a small enough level, the universe really breaks down. And the really dumb version of this theory that I'm simplifying is essentially consciousness, organisms, life, have figured out how to harness quantum at this level to move information around in a way that allows it to be doing more than it should in a certain way. And that <laughs> the subhead on this is that it's extremely criticized and people are like, yeah. again, we can't find any evidence for this. But, you know, you get to these interesting things like where Hammeroff, the anesthesiologist, said on a TV show, like, what if everything is a fractal, you know, where it's just like, uh, I was hoping fractals would come into this somehow. Yeah. And it's like, it's, there's a fractals. It's sort of like the Radiohead thing where like, you're these microtubules are picking up on these unimaginably complex and numerous set of quantum waves. The extrapolation of that is, this is from an article in Popular Mechanics, which does some really interesting stuff, but you sort of have to take it with a grain of salt. Yep. But I like the way they articulate this thing that Hammeroff said on this TV show. This article says, quote, but when you have a heightened state of consciousness, it's because you're dealing with quantum level consciousness that is capable of being in all places at the same time. That means your consciousness can connect or entangle with quantum particles outside of your brain, anywhere in the universe, theoretically, end quote. And that's true. You know, a particle can be entangled, meaning that its spin lines up with the spin of another particle. And they can be separated a whole universe apart. And these particles, all particles will reverse their spin. And you can get them to do that in a laboratory setting. And they've proven that you can have a particle that's entangled with another particle and move that particle as far away as it can get. And then you can flip the spin here and it'll instantaneously flip there, which we know it's not supposed to work because nothing should be able to move faster than light. But it's been demonstrated again and again and again. So that idea they're saying is that consciousness is connected to this idea that like somehow we're plugged into this kind of potentially they wouldn't say this. But, you know, the idea is like there's a cosmic consciousness and we're just sort of yeah. accessing our little section of it. But the, the possibility, I guess, is there that you could connect to the whole thing. Yeah. Who knows? Hey, I yeah. love it. And <laughs> now that's tubules. Tubules. Micro tubules. Microtubules. Yeah, exactly. Microtubules. And then there's one more, which is called the integrated information theory, which is one that is extremely popular and says. But also divisive. Simply, but it's also divisive. But essentially says, you know, a complex enough system will generate consciousness. And that's how the brain does it. But that also means that other complex systems could also be conscious. So it's not saying a rock can be conscious, but it's saying a thermometer or a computer has a chip of could have a level of consciousness. Or a computer chip. Yeah. yeah, something that's complex enough does. And interestingly, in September of this year, a bunch of scientists got together and published a paper that said, this is pseudoscience, and that causes great big flap in the consciousness community. All these people who supported this particular theory said, how dare you call this pseudoscience? What are you talking about pseudoscience? It's just not proven yet. I mean, they make a point where it's like, you know, again, because you're speaking about this thing that's at this theoretical level that can't quite be tested yet. 
But the fact that all these scientists dismiss it as pseudoscience really stuck in the craw of these other scientists who were taking it seriously. But that also means stuff like, you know, then people push back and say, so that means if you have just a big ass pile of thermometers, that that's going to be smarter than one yeah. thermometer. <laughs> well, it I does mean, make you not. think about what AI is doing that, you know, that yeah. makes you wor worry yeah. a lot about like chat GPT and stuff like that, uh, which right. thank gosh, we made it this long without mentioning. Yeah, and you know what? We're not going to talk about it anymore. Well, because we don't need to. Yeah, yeah. not going to do it. So that's our tour of consciousness as it stands. Yeah. Janet, there was some math, but I feel like it wasn't too painful to you. It seemed like you, you had a stick and you bit down on the stick and you got through it. And then there was some kind of nice stuff about fractals. You came into this knowing some stuff and hopefully you left it knowing more, but Again, it could have all evaporated into the cosmic ether. Yep. What uh, What do you think? Um, no, I mean, again, it's it's very interesting. It's a it's a very interesting conversation, even to use as a totally non scientific psychoanalytical tool to wonder why you want certain things or you you push back on certain things, why you feel drawn to certain things and not drawn to others. It comes as no surprise to me that after you've presented all of this, I still kind of want to believe in panpsychism. Um, <laughs> not super surprising there. And panpsychism I love... is like the black light poster of consciousness theory. Yeah. But yeah. cool kids like it too. Yeah, cool I mean, kids and cool kids like black light posters. Pedigree. Excuse because, me. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, it's like it's uh, it's individuals who. And I know that, you know, there's a whole conversation to be had about Carl Sagan and what other scientists thought of Carl Sagan or whatever, like all of that. But using him as a very easy poster child for using science, but allowing for spirituality. And I say that as a person who went to the Museum of the Bible and tried to walk through an exhibit that somehow explained how scientists believe in like the Bible. <laughs> and I did not feel that they in any way explained that. So I understand the irony of being someone who's like, I don't believe in the Bible, but I want more than just science. <laughs> I know that's yeah. stupid, yeah. but I'm interested in why. And I'm interested in the ways that we, as we sort of evolve and again, I'm not saying I've evolved past the Bible and people who believe in the Bible haven't evolved to the point I'm at. I really am not saying that. But I am interested in the ways in which we perceive the world and who chooses to take in certain pieces of information and synthesize them and make them part of their belief system and reject other pieces of information. Because at the end of the day, who am I to judge? I do the same thing. We all do it. And I think it's important to keep that in mind if you want to be empathetic. And if you are a person who's interested in community and empathy, the chances are you are going to be more drawn to the idea that there is something scientifically connective or something, you know, we love anthropomorphizing stuff. So what could be more fun than, but also painful than if you're a person who still kills ants like I do? You can't go all in, right? You can't go all in. You have to be yeah. like, I recognize that you might have a consciousness squish. Yeah. And then yep. what, yep. what, how do you walk through the world? Like, yeah. do you let those things accumulate until you throw yourself off a bridge, which goes against the idea of wanting to survive as a species? Or do you just sort of tuck that away and go like, I guess I'm just bad, but I'll continue walking through my day anyway. I don't know. It's just all very interesting. And I like that there are so many different thoughts out there. And I guess I feel like as long as there are this many different 
theories and nothing, nobody can say they've proven anything. That's an exciting place to be. I think that's yeah. really exciting. It's exciting to be at a place yeah. where some people are pointing at other people and saying, that's mysticism, you're ridiculous. And other people are saying, how dare you be so reductionist? Like, if it's still that unanswered, then I don't have to espouse any one thing. And I don't, and I can just kind of feel how I feel about yep. Whatever my gut tells me about all of those theories. You well, know? there's the wonder, right? It, it's yeah. because there, it, that, that nobody has definitively answered this question. And, you know, it, it, some people think that the question itself will dissolve. Some people think that we just haven't thought about the hard problem in the right way. Some people think it's all just figuring out the easy problem, right? And so I know I don't want it to dissolve because every time you have said that, all I can imagine is the raccoons trying to dabble with their <laughs> cotton candy. And that just seems so mean. It just oh, seems yeah. so cruel. Yeah. It's like, but I had an item and now I'm just looking at nothing but emptiness. I want them to at least get to taste consciousness before mm. it dissolves in the water. Well, yeah, I think that's, that's a right. Pretty good that's place a mic drop think, moment. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's it. That's a pretty good place that's to end it. End in raccoon consciousness. <laughs> Janet, thank you for being our raccoon who was asked to dabble some ideas today yep some of them i think did dissolve and some of them seem like they've held up um not a lot not a guinea pig but more of a a lab raccoon yeah staring deep into her pile of cotton candy well you guys are the ones in trouble because as we all know keep a raccoon in a lab long enough and it absolutely won't find a way to get the scientists in the cage it will (laughs) that's right and it will start making sandwiches that's actually a scientific proof that uh, if you leave raccoons in a laboratory long enough, eventually everyone in that lab will be three raccoons with a lab coat yep. running the show. Yeah, exactly. But thanks, guys. That was wonderful. And I feel very mentally stimulated. Janet, anything you want to plug? Just, yeah, you can listen to some of the podcasts I do. Yeah, we can listen to Braving the Elements. You can listen to Truth and Justice. You can listen to the JV Club. I talk about across that span wrongful convictions teenagers and superheroes yeah it's a grab <laughs> all, it's all you need this has been journos i'm brandon r reynolds and i'm steven jackson you can find us on the socials at at journos pod on instagram and on the tiktok at again journos pod and if you got a question if you want to be on the show if you have any sort of thing that you need investigated please drop us a line at journos at journos.net the detective agency is open open for business